table. Well, hey, uh, at least once a year, a sermon should begin with a poem by Wendell Berry. Happy today. The vacation. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly toward the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever, the river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation even as he was having it so that after he had had it, he would still have it. It would be there. With a flick of a switch, there it would be. But he would not be in it. He would never be in it. Jesus calls to you and I, come unto me, all of you who are weary and burdened and distracted, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus wants to walk the path of life with us, giving us skill to navigate life's complex realities. That skill, the Hebrews called wisdom. Wisdom is more than just knowing the facts. Wisdom is more than just knowing the rules. Wisdom is a partnership with Jesus where he brings eternity into your life such that eternity invades every decision you make. So it's as if you're standing there with Jesus for this decision and asking, how will this decision look a million years from now? What are the implications? That's wisdom, the vantage point of eternity. Now, for Christian wisdom, we make a huge assumption, right? In a word, God. God is the huge assumption of wisdom. But every worldview is an assumption, every worldview. Every one of you came in today, you believe a story that explains your life and what's going on in the world. You have a story. And everyone believes that story based on assumptions. By faith. So, in our culture right now, there are at least two highly competing worldviews. The one we might call, it's often in our schools and our educational systems, uh, naturalism or materialism. That means that there's nothing uh, beyond the grave and nothing made us. We're just a random chance product of chemicals that move together in the goo or some uh, uh, unexplainable, irrepeatable explosion, whatever that is. Life stops at the grave and there's nothing more. I thought a good explanation, I read this a few weeks back by Simon Blackburn, who teaches at Cambridge. Here's how he described the scientific story that many believe. Science teaches that the cosmos is some 15 billion years old, almost unimaginably huge, and governed by natural laws that will compel its extinction in some billion more years. Although long before that, the earth and the solar system will have been destroyed by the heat death of the sun. Human beings occupy an infinitesimally small fraction of space and time on the edge of one galaxy among a hundred thousand million or so galaxies. We evolved only because of a number of cosmic accidents, including the extinction of the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago. Nature shows us no particular favors. 
We get parasites and diseases and we die. And we are not all that nice to each other. True, we are moderately clever, but our efforts to use our intelligence to make things better for ourselves quite often backfire, and they may do so spectacularly in the near future from some combination of man-made military, environmental, or genetic disasters. That, more or less, is the scientific story of the world. That's an option. But here's the thing, with every worldview, you have to test it. You have to test it. And how do you test it? Well, you look for evidence. What's the evidence of history? What's the evidence of science? What's the evidence of all the places we gather information? Does the evidence point in a certain direction? Does it point in that direction? Does it point in another direction? Evidence. But the second thing, and this is often neglected, the second thing to test a worldview is experience. That is, can you live out the implications? Does the worldview that you profess actually filter down and trickle down into the gaps and places of your life where you actually you know, put knowledge to use? Can you live it out? So for that worldview, for instance, at least it seems to me there are two things that I think are challenging to live out. The one is this, that if life ends at the grave and there's nothing more, it seems that all of life is, in the long run, meaningless. Even one a little later in the text, he quotes uh, physicist Steven Weinberg, himself also an atheist, but he says, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. So what does that mean? And how do you live out that implication if life ultimately has no meaning? How does that filter through your life? And then the second implication of the naturalistic worldview seems to me is how do you account for things like love and beauty and even music? Are they mere chemical interactions in the spherical bone of the gray matter here? Or are they, they register nowhere else in the universe? They're just a bodily function. Or is there more to those things than that? that that's another implication to be sorted and sifted. That's one worldview. I want to spend time this morning on the theistic worldview, that there's a, some sort of something somewhere who's bigger and stronger than me that's, that has some going on behind us, and specifically strain of that called the Christian worldview. To do that, we're going to go in at an interesting angle through the Wendell Berry of the ancient Israel world. His name was Agur, and we're going to Proverbs 30. We thought it would be good to take a little break from some of the Proverbs strings we've been doing and go to the end of the book. We've had a sermon from the beginning and the end. Most everything's been in the middle because that's where the most Proverbs are. But at the end, there's these, the pro, chapter 30 is a poem by Agur where he is a keen observer of human interaction in the world and a naturalist what the creation speaks. And then Proverbs 31, of course, is that great uh, poem by, of Lemuel about his mom or wife. We're not sure which. Uh, it's actually an acrostic uh, where he uh, asserts the, the virtues and values of women. And so uh, we wanted to do at least one message from the end of the book, and that's today. And it's a way to look at the Christian worldview. So two things as you hear this from Agur the Wendell Berry. One, those of you who believe or, like me, are always struggling to believe and working to believe, does the worldview that you're about to hear resonate with your heart and the world around you? Does it make sense? Is there a ring of truth to it? So those of you who are believing, what I'm really asking you to do is if this is your worldview, 
Are you living it out? Or is it just some knowledge that doesn't really trickle down into the gaps and cracks of your life? Do you really believe it? And the answer to that is, are you really living it out? So those of you who are believing, this is a good gut check week. Am I really living what I believe? And then for those of you who came this morning, you're not sure about this Christian thing. You're not sure about anything. You're just seeking, trying to find truth. I want to ask you as you hear the Christian worldview kind of laid out to you this morning, does it ring true to you? Has this been something you're looking for? Does it answer some questions that you've had? And if nothing more, does it make you at least a little interested to know more? And maybe ask another question or two. So please give it a listen and see if it doesn't ring and and open something in your heart, at least enough to ask some more questions. Here we go. This is our text this morning. This is the Christian worldview as nature speaks to us. What's interesting is usually when we like model and, and we get inspired by something, we usually model up. That is, we find someone who's a hero, who's blazed glory, who ha, ha, has changed history. Agar is going to model down for us and go to the smallest cracks and crevices of creation and say, even here, if you're looking and listening, God is talking to you. So we model down to four of the smallest, uh, most overlooked creatures in our world. Here's the text. Proverbs 30, verses 24 to 28. Would you read aloud with me? Let's own this. God's voice, but our voice boxes. Let's read together. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are creatures of little power. Yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. The word of the Lord. We begin with ants. Have you thought much about ants lately? It's the time of year, right? I don't know about you, but in my driveway, they're filling the cracks of my driveway and making themselves known. Ants. Here's the thing about ants. They are two-dimensional creatures. They are working in the now for a coming future. They live in two dimensions. Now, there are those among us and around us who live in one dimension. Those are the people who live in the past. Those are the people who go on the journey of life, but the main thing they're concerned about is getting the selfie at every stop, posting it on Facebook, and they take much more joy out of the response on Facebook than they do the actual journey. They will never be in it. There are those who live in the present. These are the people whom for uh, tomorrow has no consequence or promise. We live in the now. Be happy. That's why we're here. Like the atheist bus billboards in London driving all around the city. There is no God. Stop worrying. Enjoy life. Live in the present. And then there are those one-dimensional who live in the future. And the diction of their language always includes the word after. After I graduate, after I get married, after I have children, after I get the house that I want, after I get the job that I want, after I retire, then I will engage deeply in life and mission. Learn from the ant. Be a two-dimensional person. What does that mean? 
Well, the ant stores its food in the summer. Certainly we're talking here about a metaphor. We're not talking about actual food that we should be storing like beans in the basement. We're talking about, well, Agur earlier in Proverbs 30, he had mentioned what he, the, the way they were going to apply this when he wrote in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The idea is that we are to be stirring spiritual food. Jesus described it this way. Women and men do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to be storing up spiritual food, Scripture. Why? Because winter is coming. So two ways to apply this. First, we all need to realize, like the ant, that winter is coming. I don't know most of your stories. I don't know where you are in life. But there's one true thing I can say to you this morning, not even knowing you, and that's this. There will come a time in your life, it's coming again, perhaps, that will be a winter for you. Perhaps a disease that you, to this point, always thought came into other people's lives. But now it becomes part of your journey. Perhaps you reached a point in your life where you thought you'd have a child by this point or maybe another child and it's been years and years and there's nothing. Perhaps you're in the throes of a job and a career and it was a career path you always thought would bring you some satisfaction and fulfillment but you're in it and you find it emptier and getting emptier by the day and you are disillusioned and a dream has died about your career. Perhaps God has given you children and you've poured yourself into them. They came into your life and brought great joy and you have deep expectation, but they've become adults and they've now turned on the values that you poured into them. Winter is going to come into your life. And therefore, we should now in the summer be storing spiritual food, the scriptures. We should be studying the Bible, reading the Bible, listening to the Bible. Whatever ways we can get the truth, God's voice, this letter, this is not to be read to pass an exam. This is a relationship. However we can get this word into our lives, we need to be doing it. We need to be storing up now because winter's coming. So two things about that. First, the Bible is intended to be doing this, this rhythm in your life, particularly in the Psalms. If you're around Waterstone any length of time, we're always pleading with you to read one Psalm a day, to read, to pray it, which actually means God, here's my prayer, and you read the Psalm and the Holy Spirit will bring faces and situations and longings to your life. That's praying a Psalm, just reading it out loud to God. Do one a day. Participate in our Stuwa Bible program. Take one home with you today. Rip out a page of the Psalms, tape it to your steering wheel. Read the Psalms, however you can get them into your life. Why? Because the Psalms will teach you how to lament before you need to lament. And you will need to lament. And the Psalms will teach you how to praise when you are lamenting and you think you could never praise again. 
The Psalms will lead you. They are the voice of the Father. They are the strength of life. And if you pray the Psalms, they will lead your life. It's how they work. They are always preparing you for the next season. Please, Waterstone, I plead with you, pray the Psalms. One every day. The other thing I want to be sure you hear about Bible reading and studying is that it's hard work. I think we undersell it here, the mouths of the church, the preachers. We undersell it. We're always saying, read your Bible, and, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to do, and just work it into your life. We're wrong. It's the hardest. It's the most heroic effort you will make in your life to make the Bible part of your daily journey. It's work. I think we'd like the metaphor to be, oh, it's just like taking your vitamins in the morning. Oh, it's just like a five-hour energy drink. Just drink it up, read your verse, and bing, I'm good to go. That is the completely dot, wrong dot metaphor, dot. Here's the metaphor. Reading the Bible is like a personal fitness routine, which means, one, it's most often the last thing I want to do first thing in the morning. Two, there are no shortcuts. You keep your butt in the chair and you read. And three, the results are seldom short-term. They are always long-term. Do you know when you will experience the results of years of Bible reading? Do you know when? When winter comes. And then all of that time you put into Bible reading will help you through. One of my heroes, Vernon Grounds, former president of Denver Seminary, used to say, the ruts of routine become the grooves of grace. Make the Bible part of your daily routine. Here's a way to do it. We promote this website a lot. It's changed a lot of us. It's just an amazing way to read the Bible. You can check out the website. They have these awesome videos that give background on every book of the Bible, including the Proverbs. They have a great uh, movie on the Proverbs. But then each day they have several plans for how you can read the Bible through in a year or three years. Just keep you track. Just keep on track. Just keep you disciplined. It's a fitness routine. You need fitness. The Bible reading the strength of God in your life. That's the ant. Listen to the ant. Store scripture because winter's coming. Next we go to the Hyrax. How many of you have heard of the Hyrax? Yeah, I hadn't either. It's a, some, ooh, some of you nature, naturalists. It's a rock badger. Here we go. Yeah, it's definitely the cutest one of the bunch. A couple things about a rock badger in Israel. They, they, you can see them from the Dead Sea all the way up to Mount Hermon. First of all, when they sun themselves on a rock, they are a rock, right? You can't even see them. Their color blends right in with the rocks. Secondly, their paws are webbed-shaped, which means they're able to cup them in certain ways so that they can actually hang on the vertical face of a rock with suction cups. We here in Colorado think that's way cool, rock climbing. And then the other thing about them is they've discovered that they, they talk to each other. They like sing to each other. There's addiction to their speech, and there's even accents that they can make out. They're very lyrical, and uh, they sing to each other. But Ager doesn't care any about that, what Ager wants us to know. By the way, this is how cool the Rock Badgers. I got all of that information out of Wired Magazine, who did a feature on Rock Badgers. <laughs> now, um, what Ager wants us to know is that the coolest thing about a rock badger 
is that they know their way into the crags on a mountain. And they can get so deep in there that a predator cannot touch them. The only way an owl or a vulture could find a rock badger is if they could knock the mountain over. A rock badger knows where security lies. Jesus got all rock badger lyrical one time when in Matthew 6 he said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What does it mean to treasure? To treasure means to fill your heart with the value of something. So you, you identify something in your life and you point at it and you say, If I have that... I will be satisfied. My heart will be full. I will be good. And that is usually a very good thing. It's family. It's a marriage. It's money. It's a job. Very good things. But we set our heart's affection on them. And we make that the place of God in in our heart. And we say, if I just have that, then I'm good to go. Waterstone Community Church, you need to hear this because you're sitting here in Littleton, Colorado. You've won the historical jackpot. No matter what you make income-wise in this room sitting, you are in the top 5% of all the income of the world. Good for you. But here's the thing. We like to think that something like money we treasure it, it can bring into our lives a little security. We just have enough in the bank, then when the rough waves come, we'll be okay, we'll survive. Sisters and brothers, friends, money cannot turn you into God. There was a college professor named Addison Leach who taught at Columbia. He was a Christian. He would make his way around to all the groups on college. And any Christians, they would befriend him. He'd become kind of a mentor. He met these two gals once. They became Christians during college, attending one of the groups. And uh, Addison Leach met them. And uh, they shared what was happening in their lives, that they were getting near graduation, these two women. And they were feeling kind of a tug to maybe explore missions, that maybe Jesus actually wanted them to live in a different culture and work with the church or uh, the Christian movement in a different place in the world. They went home and told their parents this, and their parents, who were not Christians and were in the Ivy League track of success, could not, for the life of them, understand why their daughters would want to do this, and they pushed back. They actually said, look, we understand you got some religion, that's good, but, you know, you need to keep going on and get your master's. Get your master's degree. And then you need to go on and get an internship and get into the career world and launch your career. And then you need to get some money in the bank. Get security. We all need security in life. The girls, after these conversations, became emotional and some of them, frankly, difficult. They went to Dr. Leach for his counsel, and here's what he told the girls. Here's what I would say to your parents. Tell them we're on a little ball of rock spinning through space. It's called Earth. And who knows if we're going to run into something. But even if we don't, someday under each one of us is going to open a trap door and everybody is going to fall off. At the end of your life, a trap door will open up underneath you and you will fall off the little ball of rock. And underneath will be the everlasting arms or nothing at all. And do you think a master's degree is going to give you some security? Even the atheist has to admit that 
if life ends at the grave, any sense of security in this life is an illusion. My favorite atheist, Ernest Beckner, won the Pulitzer Prize in the 60s for his life-changing book, The Denial of Death. He's a Freudian psychologist, but really, really smart. Listen to his confession. We don't want to admit that we are fundamentally dishonest about reality, that we do not really control our own lives. We don't want to admit that we do not stand alone, that we always rely on something that transcends us, some system of ideas and powers in which we are embedded and which support us. All of us are driven to be supported in a self-forgetful way, ignorant of what energies we really draw on, of the kind of lie we have fashioned in order to live securely and serenely. That's the naturalistic world, but what if the Christian worldview is true? Christian worldview, when it comes to security, three words. Christ is risen. What if Jesus went into the tomb and broke a hole through the pitiless walls of death and crawled through and beckons to you and I, follow me. What if Jesus has gone on before us to prepare a home in the crags of the rocks so secure that even on the worst day of our life, that is when we die, nothing or no one can touch us? What if he's gone there to prepare a place for us that will, when we arrive, be so full of joy that if we got just a glimpse of it now, we would come undone? What if? That's badger cool. There we go. There's the ant that says up store scripture, winter's coming. There's the rock badger who asks, do you know where your security lies? There's the locust. He's the third one. They have no king, yet they advance in the ranks. If you saw a locust in your kitchen, you wouldn't be concerned. You'd just get it out. But what if that locust went to the Marvel League of Locusts and brought his friends back? Do you know the word most associated in a sentence structure right next to locust is the word plague? The locusts in Argentina in 2016 ravaged a countryside, costing farmers millions of dollars in loss of crops. Farmers reported seeing clouds of locusts four miles long. <laughs> Someone, yeah. The power of locusts is the power of community. They don't need a king, but their instinct is to get their friends to lean on one another and to topple a kingdom in advance. It's the power of community. We need the power of community in our life. And I want to uh, assert that to you in two ways. It's how we're wired, it's our theology, but also it's our history that the church was launched on friendship. Let me unpack each of those quickly. First, you are wired for friendship. This is an interesting thing. Danielle alluded to this a few weeks back uh, on her sermon on the Proverbs friendship. It's, it's so important. In Genesis 3 is when we gave God the finger and said, thank you very much, but I'm going to go my own way. Before that was paradise. 
Genesis 1 and 2. And there was Adam. And you remember God gave Adam the, the privilege of caring for the world. He was an environmentalist. He named the animals, taking care of everything. But after all that was done, Adam was kind of lonely. The text says he found no suitable helper. He needed companionship. And so then Eve came along. But understand this, that this was before the fall. This means that even though Adam had a 24-7 quiet time with the Father, that was not enough. Adam needed human companionship. And the need there was not because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. And he needed companionship. The ache for friendship is the one ache that's not the result of the fall. We are built for friendship. Jesus himself demonstrated the second Adam. When he came, what was the closest thing to a program he did? A three-year camping trip with 12 guys. And on the worst night of his life, he needed friendship. He asked three of the closest friends, would you stay with me? Would you pray for me? He was doing that not because he was weak, not because he was dysfunctional. He was doing that because he was perfect. And he needed friends. Do you know that longing you sometimes have in your life when you go through a certain season and you don't have enough friends? You wish you had more friends. You, you're lonely. That longing is not because you are dysfunctional or weak. That longing is because you were made perfectly in the image of God. God, who is himself a friendship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning, there was friendship, and friendship made you. You're built for friendship. That's our theology. It's our wiring. It's also the history of our church. It's the history. I want to show you just one glimpse from the book of Acts, chapter 21. We only need to read two words, after we. Okay? Before this, Paul had pretty much been in control of his ministry. He has three missionary journeys. He's planned them all. He's performed them. But shortly before 21, Paul has a vision from the Holy Spirit that says, go to Jerusalem. As soon as Paul pivots and turns into Jerusalem, his life begins to fall apart. He's beaten. He's in constant peril. He's just in danger all the time. And he knows that going to Jerusalem is going to make it even worse. But he turns into it. The other thing that happens simultaneously is that Paul begins to lean more and more on friends. Such that by the time we get to chapter 21, Luke, who's writing this, who's a Gentile medical doctor... He changes the pronouns. Up until the end of chapter 20, Luke had always said, he, 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 Paul, they, they, they. From here on, it's we. Even the pronouns change. Why? Because Luke decides to go all the way to Jerusalem with Paul, a Gentile doctor and a Jewish lawyer, on the way to Jerusalem to face who knows what for the sake and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's we. It's always we. Christianity was launched on friendship. So what does that mean for us? Waterstone, how do we apply this to our lives? The writer of Hebrews does it for us. Here's what we need to do. 
Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more since you, as you see the day approaching. This means because we're wired for friendship and our mission is friendship, that we need to be spurring one another. Just sit in that word for a while, spur, spur. The reason you come to church is to be a spur. Let me remind you of why you come to church. First reason, you come to worship. In the Greek language, in the New Testament, the main word for worship means to kiss. Not romantic, not buddy-buddy, but to kneel. And the king extends his hand to you and you bare your neck to kiss his ring, which means you commit everything in your life to him. The reason you come to church week after week is to again say to Jesus, Jesus, I pledge my total allegiance to you. That's why you came this morning. But the second reason you come to church and why we need you here and why you can't put if so easily in front of whether you come to church, if I don't get a better offer, if my kids don't have anything, if, 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 I, I'm sick of the if. The reason you come to church is to be a spur. Someone needs a word from you. Sometimes the word of Christ in a brother or sister is stronger than it is in you on any given week, and they need to hear a word from you. You know, we don't do these greeting times just to make our introverts mad. We do these greeting times because I could tell you story after story of how a connection's made and a lunch ensues and someone's networked into the body, a ministry contact is made. It changes people's whole course of lives from a simple greeting time. Here's what I want to encourage you to do, Waterstone. By the way, the priorities, pledge allegiance to Jesus, be a spur to someone every time you come. And then the last reason you come is for whatever you want to get out of it. But you're down here. Here's what I want you to do. When you park the car, you know, with your family or come by yourself, just with Jesus. As you're getting out, just say, Lord, <laughs> make me a spur today. Just give me a word for somebody. Take me to a person. Greeting time, lobby, coffee. Take me to someone who needs Hebrews 10 from me. That will totally change the way you view this. And then there's a lizard. <laughs> lizard! I hate lizards. This one's a tough one, right? Lizard can be caught with a hand, yet is found in the king's palace. You have to think on this a little bit. Caught with the hand, small, insignificant. And as I said, my personal opinion of lizards is not high. I would never touch one. They're ugly. And yet, they, small, insignificant, and perhaps ugly, get to live in the king's house. What is that? Grace. Audacious, big, hairy grace. 
small, insignificant, and perhaps ugly gets to live in royalty. That's grace. Grace is the distinguishing feature of the Christian worldview. Grace means that we cannot save ourselves. To quote my favorite theologian Bono, sometimes you can't make it on your own. You need help. You are helpless when it comes to getting to God, to getting to the king's palace. And if you admit your need, if you admit that you fall short, Jesus is on your neck with kisses as soon as you look in his direction. Jesus has the grace of a brother who wants you to be a son or daughter of his father. Grace is the weep of the father who every day is looking for his son and daughter to come home again. Grace is on Skull Hill, what on the surface seems like the waste of a beautiful life. But Jesus said about that, no, no, that's not a waste. I saw what happened there in Isaiah 53. My soul was satisfied. Do you hear it? Jesus is the only treasure that if you treasure it, it treasures you right back and gives you what your heart really wants. Grace, unmerited, undeserved love of God all over your life. His opinion of you, the only one that counts. His promise to you, the only security you have. Grace, grace is the power of life. Grace is the power of the Christian worldview. It does two things. It makes Waterstone this way. First, because of grace, we don't give up on anybody. No one, no one is beyond the reach of the Father's love. We do not give up on anyone. Ecclesiastes 9, 3 is our life verse. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. Because while you're alive, there's hope. Do you know the other thing it means? We don't give up on anyone and we don't give up on ourselves. God is at work, and the deeper his grace sits in our heart, the more weight it, the gospel pushes us, the more we come transformed to give out that love to others and others and others. God is never done with us. We are always a work in progress. The great illustration of this is, okay, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch is the appropriate word for John Newton. He was a slave trader. He made lots of money kidnapping human beings, stealing them from their lives and families, taking them across oceans. These people living in their own excrement for, year, for weeks on these voyages and then being sold into slavery. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a wretch, a human trafficker. One day... Someone invited him to church, <laughs> and he heard a sermon. And the grace of God began to wedge into his heart. He was so intrigued that he decided to learn a little more about this Christian worldview, and a little more, and he began to read a Bible on his own. And wouldn't you know it, John Newton bowed his knee and pledged his allegiance to Jesus and said, I'm yours. And his life began to change. Really, I mean really change. He put a swear box on the mast of a ship. To Every time a sailor cursed, they had to put money in the box, cleaned up their language. He outlawed boozing on the Sabbath. 
big changes. But do you know that when John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he was still a slave trader? That would be like a Nazi prison guard having a twinge of conscience for stealing poker chips from his buddies last night while he's stoking the oven. It would be years later, the grace of God sitting deeper and deeper and deeper in his heart that Newton would finally come to see that his actual work in life was evil and he walked away from it and became one of the leading advocates of abolition in England. The point is this, God's grace will keep working on your life to bring transformation. God is never done with you. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, to respect, to worship. Christian worldview. The implications lived out look like this. We are like the ant who so value Scripture that we're storing it up because winter's coming. The Word, we're anchored to this book. We're like the badger who knows that our security lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're like the locust who knows that the power is in community, that the church is a movement, and we look at this very differently because we're friends in the gospel. And lastly, we are like the lizard who knows that not for one second did we ever deserve anything from God but everything he's given to us by grace and that sits lower and deeper in our hearts and totally turns our focus to other people all the time. Grace. That's the Christian worldview. Are you living that out? Are you more curious? Would you like to know more? We come now to the table. I've asked you to bring everything in your life to the table. We're ready to do that. Let's begin our approach to the table by quoting John 3.16 together. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the everlasting life of God. As we come to the table, we hear the voice of Jesus who on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood. The new covenant Forgiveness poured out. As often as you drink it, remember me. So we come to the table now and we bring our entire life and place them again, all parts, into the hands of Jesus for healing and for challenge. When you're ready, come to the table. There's gluten-free in the back. There'll be stations around the room. Tear off a piece of bread. Dip it into the cup. You can take it in the front. You can uh, take it anywhere in the room or back to your seat. Come to the table and be with your king.